Okay, Rich A, you are on. Hi, I'm Rich. I'm a recovering human being, hopefully also an evolving one in other areas. Um, I'm going to start with the good news of the present right now and then go through the more problematic uh, problems from the past. Um, I'm in a stable relationship, a wonderful woman for 45 years. She's Almost, she came from a very loving family. She is not barely codependent. And while we've had some troubles because of my traumas in the past, um, she has been there for every serious problem that's cropped up along the way. Um, she did threaten to divorce me twice, I guess after about 20 years. Um, and I've been toying with the idea that, okay, I'm so, uh, less healthy than her, that that was the reason I stayed. I was, you know, I was so codependent with her, but recently I've come to the conclusion more or less that I knew a good thing when I saw it. So I just, when I was a bit out of control, I just backed off. Um, Yeah. So we're in this wonderful marriage. Hope it lasts a long time. Of course, you can never know. We have a wonderful, just over 30 son who is stable. He loves math and science. He teaches math in a high school. I think he's very good at it. I've seen him teach a couple of times a few years ago, but I can only imagine he's gotten better. He's diligent in his work. Um. We're financially in, in, in decent shape. We've never been all that extravagant. I mean, once in a while on a vacation or something or buying something for the house. But in general, we've always paid our bills, uh, never been delinquent in anything. When we got our first mortgage on our house, I didn't sleep for a few months because I've never owed anyone that much money. And I come from a poor family. So it took a while for me to get into some kind of sleep pattern again. Um, but we paid it off. Uh, actually, we had a second mortgage because it was back in the 1980s when the interest rates went, when it went very high. So when we bought our house, when we originally uh, were ready to close, our interest rate on our mortgage was 18.5%. Uh, luckily, uh, by the time we did finally close, it was down to only 12.5%. <laughs> Um, and then a few years later, things got better again. This is the end of uh, uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency. Things got better again. Eventually, we were down to 7 or 6%, something like that. So not, it's not that bad. And we paid off the first mortgage. Uh, also, they only allowed us, uh, the bank would only loan us half the what we needed. We got a second loan from Julie's grandmother, who liked us as a young couple. Uh, she was an orphan. And she must have seen something good in us. And I still, she died pretty soon after I got to know her, but I still treasure the memories I have of her. Um, so, but we paid both those mortgages off in half the time, 20 years. So that was no longer a factor. We owned our house for a long time. Um, Julie's in good health. I'm in reasonable health. Um, I did have leukemia that was diagnosed as full-blown leukemia in 2017. Um, and 
when I was young, all I knew is if someone got leukemia, they were going to die. Basically, that's all I knew. And it was scary for both of us, but uh, we ended up at the Sloan Memorial Kettering Hospital, um, which is one of the best cancer hospitals uh, in the country, even the world. And eventually, after you know, them doing a lot of tests and finally pushing the, the main cancer doc, he said, well, you probably have about a 50-50 chance of surviving at underlying conditions. I had diabetes, uh, hypertension from all the trauma, whatever. Um, and it was a scary decision to make whether to go ahead with the procedure, only 50-50 chance. But without it, it's like, eh, they can predict how long you're going to live, but it's not all that long, a few years. I finally decided on the basis that there were so many risks. Uh, I uh, was um, subject to and later I subject myself to, not just from my parents, that it's like, well, could have died a few times before this. So what the heck, might as well try it. Mm -hmm. And it came out fairly well after the um, initial rounds of, of chemo, different kinds for two weeks, three weeks, different days, different amounts. Um, you know, they cleared everything out of the blood. They cleared all the bad cells out of the bone marrow. Um, and then they infused me with the donor's uh, bone marrow. Everything went went well. It was certainly not easy. Um, I was so weak. And the ward I was on, one person died while I was there. They didn't make it. Um, but they encourage you, no matter how weak, to get up, which is interesting. Um, there was a little treadmill in my room, which I tried to use, and they were pleased with the amount I was using it. And then when I could get out of bed, it's like, nope, now you get to, to walk with your pole and all the infusion lines running into your port in your chest. You get to walk around the, the floor, and you try to do laps. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't easier, but it got easier. Um, since I had to walk with a pole all the time, started calling it my poley, my little buddy. <laughs> um, my wife came there pretty constantly. She's always supported me. She uh, has always been good at her work and and, and both the, the business side of it and socializing with various members of, of, of her team or beyond in the business. So she got uh, special permission to work out of my room and she would be there frequently. In fact, sometimes I wanted to send her home because she was so tired. Just, Don't come, go home. Everything is fine after a while. She's always like, like that, has been like that. She she tries to support too much now that I'm more recovered. It's like, Jewel, you're doing too much for me. Let me do this. Let me do that. Mm -hmm. It's nice to lean on her, but I got to, you know, I got to push my recovery. I remember food tasted horrible when I got to the halfway house after a month. It was hard to find something to eat. Water tasted like iron. Spaghetti tasted like straw. Certain things I couldn't either keep down or came out the other end. But again, my wife was so supportive. Yeah, would you like to try this? You like to try that? She's always bringing new stuff into this halfway house. And slowly, 
after three months, I got out of the halfway house. It was nice to compare notes with other people. I heard that some of the doctors didn't like that, but okay. <laughs> we needed some support, the people that were recovering. Mm -hmm. um, I had graft versus host disease, which mean my, even though I was on a rejection, uh, anti-rejection drug, my body didn't recognize the, the foreign uh, bone marrow uh, cells at one point after two years. They were trying to take me off the anti-rejection drug, and perhaps it was too soon or it's because I was elderly and had underlying conditions. I don't know. Um, but I so I had a relapse to the point where um, my wife had to wheelchair me into the hospital. I couldn't, my arms and legs felt like they were on fire. And I couldn't, I didn't have motion. And she had to bodily lift me off the bed that morning to get me in the car. Of course, when I got to the hospital, there was help. And they admitted me for 12 days. And that was the one time, as bad as I had felt the month I was in for the original treatment, that was the one time I really thought I might die. I had chills. I had fever. I couldn't move without incredible pain. But they uh, got to me soon enough, and they gave me large... Uh, amounts of steroids, whatever the appropriate large amount was. And uh, so I came back. And after 12 days, I was out again. But that had, you know, pushed back my recovery a while. So it's been five years now. But in the last year, I'm really beginning to feel like myself. I really, it's like, okay, this, you know, okay, I'm five years older, but this is what it felt like just before I went into the hospital for all the chemo for a, for a month. And that's a very hopeful sign. Um, I still have to do certain treatments that if my cancer doc says, um, okay, your immune system is back to 100%, whatever it should be for you, what it was before or after with all the chemo. Uh, there's a few things, drugs and a monthly treatment I can get off of. And then, uh, you know, just go back uh, once a year or whatever. They'll, you know, look at me and the, the maintenance to see if anything's possibly going wrong. And if not, then I'll be able to, to you know, live for who knows how long. I'm mm -hmm. in the bonus round, which means if I hadn't done anything, I would have been dead a year, year and a half ago, most likely, the, the averages say. So it's like, yeah, I, I, I always thought negatively as a kid, and I'm giving you probably too much graphic detail, but that's... You know, I, I tend to like, well, that was bad. But then at the end, I can say, I'm in the bonus round. You know, don't forget that. I should be dead. So for all this stuff that, that was difficult and horrendous, whatever, it's a beautiful thing. And I want to spend as much time as I can with my wife and son. And I'm coming to love her more. And I'm coming to not be so much of a helicopter parent of my son because... I thought I had really damaged him when I was young. And I want to make up to him anything that he ever feels I've damaged him by. He has an open invitation that if he ever, he can talk to me. And if, if it gets, if there's something I've missed that, that is worse, that he wants to see a therapist, a therapist, I volunteered, I'll go with him and we'll, we'll work it out. We'll figure out what it was. I want him to be as healthy as possible and to have as good a life as possible. And same thing, same thing for my wife. So it's still really good news. I mean, here I am financially stable. Here I am with a wife that's seeing 
that I'm recovering more and she's happy. It almost feels after all these years of her supporting me that she's just waiting for me to recover more and to catch up to her. That's a beautiful feeling. Sorry, I'm going to cry a little bit. <laughs> She's always been there. She's not my God. She's not my higher power. I know she has some codependency issues, but man, couldn't have asked for a better wife. Just couldn't have. I didn't know that when we first got married. I was better in school than her. I had better grades. I was going to have the better job. And from my uh, uh, home of origin, of course, the man took care of the woman. I mean, she was educated. She was willing to work. But I was the one that was going to be the backstop. <laughs> She's the one that saved me. Yeah. Um, so, how did this all start? My father was a military man, as his father was before him. They were very quiet about their lives. Of course, they were both older when I was born. He was 57 and she was 38. And he had been on battlefields. He had been physically injured and, and definitely also in, in mind. He'd, he'd been maimed. My mother, unfortunately, as a civilian in Germany in World War II, she had her own extensive amount of damage from the war, especially the aftermath of the war or when in 1943, 1944, um, the Allies were strategic bombing uh, many of German cities. She lived in one of them. She never told me this, but I researched it, and her home city was uh, strategically bombed by hundreds of bombers uh, from either the U.S. or the uh, English uh, Royal Air Force, four times at least. And the other thing was, oh, there were many other raids of smaller, I mean, I just can't imagine what, what that was like. She took me back to Germany and once or twice, we got, so we went back four or five times to visit relatives. And she took me at least once or twice to that home city. And my earliest memories of that is riding on an overhead monorail. Actually, it's a hanging monorail. It's called the Schwebebahn. And it went right along the river. Wuppertal is a city that extends very far, but goes up into the hills on the side of the river of the valley and a little bit over, but it's much longer city than anything else. So this is a major transportation route for uh, for many people uh, moving through the city. And I remember seeing at my youngest new stuff, looks beautiful, beautiful stuff. And then we'd come to an area that was still totally demolished. I mean, that happened in 43, 44, 45. And here I am in early 60s, seeing parts of the city that hadn't yet been reconstructed. I mean, I didn't know it back then. It was just so different. And then I finally pieced it together that, you know, they were working like mad to recuperate from, from the war. And yet in this city, there were blocks and blocks, isolated, okay, but many blocks that still were bombed out. Oh, man, war is hell, isn't it? It's horrible. So my mother was damaged by... The end of the war and the aftermath of the war, she told she didn't she said a little bit more than my my father. She told me about wandering the countryside for for almost a year or nine months because there was no food. The Allies hadn't planned, and it's not like I blame them. 
Um, they hadn't planned to have to take care of whatever amount of the German population was still left. They actually did a pretty good job of getting uh, the food distributed after six months or nine months, but she was wandering in the countryside, you know, trying to have somewhere to sleep and to get food and with her best friend. And one thing she did mention a couple of times at that period, she lost all her teeth and she had dentures for the rest of her life, which when I was small, I was like, hey, dentures, what's that? She took them out. It's like, ew, for a while when I was young. And I said, okay, well, okay, that's what it is. Um, she had difficulty with heights. I'm not quite sure where that came from, but I do know that many people do. And once when we were in Valley Forge, there was an observation tower when I was very young that I managed to get all the way to the top the first time. She was trying to go with me. She only got up about halfway. I still managed to get up all the way. But later on, as I grew, I maybe from that experience, maybe from other things, I had a fear of, of going up. I could never go up that tower again. Mm. She also had trouble, of course, uh, of course, you wouldn't know. But it makes even more sense to me that she had trouble with enclosed places because she must have you know, run down into the basement when the bombers were coming over and you never know who's going to get it. Close enough to you, it'll blow you up. It doesn't even have to be that close. The pressure wave from a big bomb can rupture your lungs. And you can sit there and look like you're normal and be dead. I don't know if they knew that, but I suspect the word must have gotten around. So yeah, she was terrified, I'm sure. I'm sure she's seen some people killed, maybe some loved ones killed. She wouldn't never told me that. So she had a fear of enclosed places. When I was young, we would go to the Army Medical Hospital in Fort Dix. And one time we had to go from floor to floor and an elevator door opened. There was a bank of eight of them. And she and I went in and she stood there and she said, nope. And she got out. She couldn't be in there alone. And I guess I was too young to count, which also hurt at some point in recovery. That I, you know, I just couldn't help her because, you know, little kids, I believe, at least for me, I should say, for me, I wanted to help them even when I was three years old. There was something wrong in my house. There was mm -hmm. hidden fear. There was, and I didn't have words for it until later, but I know it was there. I could see it in their faces. I could see it in their postures. I could hear it in a grunt or something or a little bit of a sigh. There was fear there, there was pain there, and I went to hug them. My father really couldn't be hugged. He didn't know really how to accept it. He tried, the one time I tried to hug him, he had a smile on his face, but it was kind of a grimace. And another way I've, I've felt about it at a time, it was almost like a, a cat playing with a mouse. Or, that may be something that it's just illusory as I did recovery later, but there was definitely this grimace. He didn't know how to smile naturally anymore. That was the best he could do. Hmm. And my mother, when I was very young, would give me a hug, but also at times she would take a hug because she was needy. She said, I wanted a child because I wanted someone to love me. She mm -hmm. never felt loved.
And I realized I had enough recovery or I learned from my wife that that's not why you have kids. You have kids to guide them and let them be themselves. But that was the best she could do. I remember thinking about it as if she had her little Ken doll. And it just never really got better than that. As I got older and started to differentiate, there were problems because when I was young and I would do basically everything she wanted or asked, you know, I was her doll. But as I started to grow up and have different ideas and wanted to go in different direction, friction started to build up and it got quite bad uh, when I was a teenager by that time. In one way, I'm, I think I'm lucky because it's taken me decades of therapy and recovery to understand the dynamics in my family. But there was only really the three of us. There was no extended family um, in this hemisphere. We did visit uh, my, my mother's uh, in-laws every couple of years or so. I remember going over four times before I went to college with her, usually in the summer, but one time for a year. She said the first time I went over, and I really can't imagine this, that we went for for um, went for a summer. She said, by the time I got back, I could speak German fluently. I don't know that I could speak it too, but maybe it was when I was four. But that's still amazing. <laughs> I don't remember any of this really. But that I could speak fluent German at four. Uh, my German is incredibly rusty. I can uh, listen to someone and get maybe... 30 to 50% of the understanding now after years of not speaking, the decades of not speaking German anymore. But that I picked it up that early, boy, I tell you, I really believe that young, very young children's brains, while some things are pro programmed in genetically, there is just this openness, this big sponge that takes in everything, microsecond by microsecond, that they are learning. It is so amazing. And I was too. We went back over when I was uh, going into eighth grade. We went for a year, and I'll have to I'll talk a little bit more about that because that was a uh, ended up being from a very terrifying uh, moment in my past. Um, so anyway, I'm three. I'm four. At four years old, my father really raged at me, and I'd heard him being angry far away from me. He was in the military. They didn't even have these concepts back then, but he was on three different battlefields at different times during his military career. Got shot up in two of them. Um, I know he had PTSD. I'm just learning about CPTSD, but my gut feeling says, oh yeah, he had that too. <laughs> Um, and he had TBI because he was in the Philippines where MacArthur was in charge in the 20s. And uh, he was in a motorcycle accident. He was a courier in a sidecar that swerved to avoid a truck. And I don't have all the details, but I know a few months after that, he was discharged from the Army. And I was told by one of my best therapists that what happens if you have TBI is that you often lose to a greater or lesser extent your uh, anger management control. And boy, he had lost it 
um, when I was born. My earliest memories, he had lost it. He just couldn't be appropriate with his anger, and he would rage. And that's the only bit of information I have where, of his military record, where he was in an accident in a sidecar. I can just imagine him being thrown out or they hit something. And the fact that they had charged him from the army then, which he, the U.S. Army, he was also in the Canadian Army before that. He was a, from some people's point of view, he was a soldier of fortune. But that's way too glorious. His life was miserable at different times in, in, the, in the military. Um, so I don't know of any other time where he would have gotten TBI or something equivalent. So I'm saying that's when, and I'll never find out more. At one point, a couple of decades ago, I finally realized that he, there was a bunch of military records in St. Louis and these hundreds of warehouses or hundred warehouses that they have military records of everything. And when I started to apply, <laughs> that was when a quarter of the place burned down. And according to them, it took out most of my father's records. So I still have quite a bunch, but I never got this mother load of stuff that might have helped me understand him even better. So what I don't know, I try to fill in his story with the most probable thing that happened. And I always try to put a good spin on it because otherwise it would just not be good for my recovery. And I'm probably viewing him a bit darker than I really should. I know I had a half brother that he wouldn't tell me about that my mother only told me about after uh, he died. <clears throat> and he wouldn't tell me because he was worried about his, his, his my half brother wanting his money when he died. And I did get to talk to my half brother for a while. He was very old. He died a few years after I finally, uh, my wife actually <laughs> found out a contact wonderful person that she is. And I talked to him a few times and he, he seemed reasonable to me. He had, uh, we was a machinist. He had worked on the landing legs for the uh, lunar lander. He had four kids. He said calmly, no, I never wanted his money. I just wanted contact. And also back then, 30 years ago, my father was, I understand, saner. He wasn't as sick as when I was born and when he was 57. But my, but my half-brother told me one interesting thing. When my father divorced his first wife for being an alcoholic, the court actually gave him his young son, which I thought was like that almost never happened back then in the 30s or whatever. But he got it. But he had to be in the Army and make money, so he put him in a boarding school or a boarding house. And the thing my half-brother would say is that when he came to visit, he would play with all the other children, but he wouldn't play with him. And that confirmed something that I thought about my father, which is he was toughening us all up for life, that life was hard. And it must have been more appropriate with his son, even though that's a strange incident. But for me, he was such a wreck that I couldn't distinguish between being toughened up and just being terrified by a lunatic until I had done a lot of recovery. And that's only recently, the last year or two, when I could finally see him as, as, as a human being, as the hurt, broken man he was doing the very best he could. I'm very happy that I finally got there. Took a long time, but the gift of forgiving him, of seeing him as a real human being, 
as much as possible was still, you know, I'll never know it entirely. He never talked. I don't have enough records. But finally being able to see him as a real human being, and I cried, not only was it a relief, it was a gift of understanding the world better and how bad war is, even if you're not on the battlefield anymore. What some veterans bring home to their families is just horrible. And the, the, the wives that stay with them or the children that are with them at times has to be as bad as mine. Other times it'll be easier. I hate war with a passion. I understand that sometimes you have to fight a war. But I want every possibility of diplomacy. I want it to be the absolute last necessity to have to go to war for. I want it to be a defensive war. I want everything else tried first because it's just horrible. So I remember my dad raging at me when I was four years old. He was coming down the stairs. I had been too loud. I had forgotten, you know, three and a half, four. I had forgotten that I wasn't supposed to be loud. How long is a three and a half year old going to remember that? He's coming down the stairs. He's angry. I hid behind the couch um, in the living room, hoped he wouldn't find me. He did. He told me to come out from behind the couch. I was too scared not to comply. I didn't know really what was going to happen, but I was too scared not to comply. And he raged at me, and he used foul language and language that he probably used when he was in the U.S. Coast Guard when he was a trainee of Coast Guard recruits. I didn't understand most of the words. I understood the energy of the rage that was coming at me, the hatred, the I'm nothing thing. And why are you, yep, why are you screaming? And why, why, why are you, I don't even know if I was screaming. Why, why are you playing so loud? Whatever. And eventually he just, he didn't hit me. That was good. But eventually I, I cried so much that I ran out the, through the house, ran out the back door onto the concrete, uh, patio that we had and I sat there crying now as I ran out I saw my mother in the kitchen off to the left hand side she must have heard how he was raging at me but she couldn't do anything I don't know why but she couldn't do anything to protect me for whatever reason so I'm out there on the back porch uh, concrete stoop uh, crying eventually she comes out eventually she, she sits by, by me Eventually, she puts her arm around me for a minute. And at that point, I said to my mom, three and a half, four-year-olds, he's, he's a bad, bad man, mommy. He's just a bad man. And I finally linked that up to the point of saying that was the truth. It was the truth as I understood it as a three and a half, four-year-old. And I'm happy I said it. Because I was trying, even if in words, to defend myself. He's a bad man. What she said next was, no, he's not bad. He's just very sick. Was, which was confusing to me as a three-and-a-half-year-old. And I forgot it, you know, on the top of my mind. Eventually, as I got older, I guess it came back to me, or she said something like that again. And it's like, oh, yeah, maybe he's sick, but it's still incredibly terrifying. Because he raged pretty often, and for the 
sometimes the most trivial of things. Sometimes it would have been appropriate to be angry, but he couldn't control his anger, so it would be rage. I stayed away from him as much as I could for 10 years. I ran to my mommy when I could. She was safer, although later, not so safe as I differentiated myself from her. But he was, uh, I say it to this day, he was the nastiest, most dangerous, threatening person I have ever been in contact with. I have never met anyone like him, and I'm, I'm sure they're, they're out there somewhere, maybe in hospitals, maybe in homes, unfortunately. And uh, I don't want to have to cope with them again. I had no choice back then, but I don't want to see a person like that again. So after he retired, when I was five, he was in the civil service and he was an inspector of an ammunition works plant in Burlington, New Jersey. He was trying to get 100% disability and he cursed about that. He eventually got it. That's typical of the VA. There's not enough resources placed there. So people have to fight for what they need. And then they have to fight usually in some kind of disabled condition. But he did get it. And we moved to another town. I remember that I was going to go to kindergarten or primary school at the first house we lived in. But then we moved to a new place and I went to, to a different school. Um, well, my mom took me there for the first time. I guess she was my lifetime. When she left, I cried like crazy. Don't go, don't go, don't go. Eventually, I learned that school was a safe place and an interesting place. And I finally realized after a few years, it was the safest place for me to be. And the one good thing my parents did for me, I mean, there were other things, some minor, some reasonably considerable, but the best absolute thing they did for me is that they knew from their own lives, and they had to scrape for money and they were poor, that education was a way out. Get a good education, get a good career, make money, you have more options, you could have a better life. And while my father wasn't good at keeping me on the guidepost, he would use uh, two have, well, he didn't use the carrots. My mother, well, probably they talked about it, I, I don't know. I would get dollars for every A that I got in middle school, which back then was like, for me, it was like, oh, that's a lot of money. So it's like, okay, let's go get those A's. But it was also a safe place because they taught things. There was no raging, there was no, real danger that was taunting from some kids, but that was nothing compared to what I felt at home. So it was safe and they were teaching us reasonable things and they were teaching us to be logical. So it was a really good environment for me. And they approved of it. Dad said, if I didn't graduate well from a high school, I would be out on the street. Now, I don't know if he really meant it, but I really suspect he did because he had to run away from home when he was 15 because his father was beating him too much. And he ran down to the docks in Manchester. And back then there wasn't a lot of paperwork. 
So he was able to get on board a ship and make some kind of arrangement with the captain or the third mate or whoever to shovel coals into the steam boiler to come over to Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia. So that's how how difficult his life was. More difficult than mine. I had a, he said he would feed me, uh, clothe me, and put a roof over over my head, and he did that, which was a lot more than his family could do for him. My mother wanted me to get a good education too, because she had had jobs, part-time jobs, low-level jobs, especially in the Weimar Republic with the political glands that's, that, that, that sprang up because, uh, um, you know, the Weimar Republic wasn't that stable and they had to pay way too much money reparations for the First World War. And there were political gangs that, that sprang up and would fight with the police or with each other. And that's how Hitler started. Um, so she lived in very uncertain times. And after the 1929 stock market crash, as much as some hypercapitalists want to deny it, it affected the whole world or much of the world. And that's when everything started to really collapse in Germany. They couldn't make the reparation payments anymore because their money was worthless. And so she lived in that, in that uncertain time. She had to go to work. She had to go out of school, had to uh, be taken out of school. She had to work for her family to make whatever money they could. Neither of them got past middle grade, a middle school. But they wanted education for me. Bless them. And they, you know, heavy, heavy whips, heavy, good, big carrots. Uh, and it was safe for me. So I was like, okay, let's do this thing. And I'm not a genius, but I'm pretty smart. And I was able by working hard and staying safely in my room away from them. Um, I was able to get good grades. Uh, I graduated from high school as the valedictorian. Now, admittedly, it was a very small school. It was a private school. Uh, and the reason I got into a private school is because when my mother took me to Germany for a year, the public school principal had agreed I could take my books and study and come back and take a test to see if I could skip a grade. And he reneged on that promise. So my mother got so mad that she ended up putting me in a small private school where I got a half-time scholarship, I think. I don't know if I would have been able to go otherwise. Um, and I did well there, but it was a small boys' school that was associated with a, a uh, Presbyterian, I believe, girls' school that had been in existence for 150 years. And so, and it was having financial trouble, so they thought if they made it boys to... And we weren't co-ed for the first two years, but by the time I was a junior and senior, they let us take some classes together with the girl that was girls. That was a novel experiment, you know, a little dicey for them. Um, I did well. My class was a class of seven. The biggest class I ever saw graduate from there was the big class of 20 kids. But in my class, for whatever reason, we had some pretty smart people. I ended up going to Princeton. My best friend, Paul, ended up going to Harvard. Another friend ended up going to the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. Another person ended up going to Trinity. And this is out of class of seven. So we were a pretty heady bunch. They were proud of us, too, I imagine. 
all of us got into Princeton. I think the reason was because the headmaster at the time was a Princeton graduate and he really pushed for us. So I was lucky that way too. I uh, probably wouldn't have gone to Princeton. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have met my wife. And I thought the best thing in the early years, even when we were married, is that I got a good education at Princeton. But I learned over time as uh, as I went through uh, my dark period of after my child was born, and I learned how much my wife would support me. I look back and say, you know, the best thing I ever got out of Princeton was that I met my wife and married her. So what am I up to? Ah, uh, I'm trying to not to mention this, but I'm, I'm going to say it once. Hopefully, eventually, I won't have to say it anymore. Please. My father tried to abandon me when I was, or threatened to abandon me when I was three and a half because he just couldn't stand noise. He called me wild. He called me. Uh, I didn't listen to my mother, which I'm sure I did because she was the one that loved me. I mean, as a three and a half year old, I'm sure I didn't do everything right, but I I knew who I was going to stick with. Um, he wanted to send me to a military academy. I didn't know what that was at three and a half, but I knew what sent away meant. And that was really scary. Uh, my mother threatened to abandon me when I was 10 because she was, she needed her religion and she was very religiously abusive. She thought the only place I could get morals was in Sunday school and church. And she threatened to abandon me because I fought her about this. Um, eventually told her at around 10, even though I was dressed in my best and standing on the front porch of her stoop of her new house, I'm not going anymore. I'm just not going. And she said, well, if you don't go and I hear about it, don't bother coming back to this house. So in the end, they had both threatened to abandon me. And a couple of years later, I, I heard about atheists, atheists and that they didn't believe in God. And as a 12-year-old, I said, well, that means I don't have to go to Sunday school or church. So I declared myself an atheist. I no longer felt I could rely on either of them. But I had to rely on myself. The atheists felt good. Felt right at that time. And there was a period I was an atheist for hmm, 20 years, roughly. And there was a period in there where when I had found this, I became what I'm calling an evangelical atheist. If someone asked me, I'd say, I'm an atheist, and here's why you should be an atheist. I didn't know any better. Um, and I'm sure as some other person who has related to me, if you had met me in that period, you would not have wanted to ride with me on a bus. <laughs> it would have been just too uncomfortable or think me too strange, whatever. I eventually got over that as I met more atheists, and I didn't like some of them. Some of them were real nasty, and I realized, oh, I'm, I'm a little like that. So gradually, I toned it down. Uh, gradually, in recovery, I made, I took the humility step of saying, you know, you're an engineer. You believe in logic, and I do. It's a, it's a, it's, it doesn't solve everything, but to the extent that it does solve things, I like it. Very much. But I uh, finally came to the realization I couldn't prove that God didn't exist. So I took the step, okay, I'm no longer an atheist, I'm an agnostic. I can't prove God doesn't exist. I can't prove God does exist. 
from my mother's religious abuse, I'm pretty much leaning to God doesn't exist. But I have become more and more of a happy over the last 25 years, more and more of a happy agnostic. It fits me. And when I talk reasonably about it, I find I can talk with reasonable atheists about their deep beliefs, and I can talk with reasonable theists about their deep beliefs. And it's so freeing. It's so freeing that I don't have to think about, well, what am I? My mother tried to make me a theist for so many years, I had to think that way. And now, yeah, that's why I became an atheist. And okay, now I'm an agnostic. Well, I'm finally at the point where if I approach it carefully and slowly, I can talk to the most spiritual atheist and theist. It's wonderful. I love it. I was so shut off from the world as an only kid. The only place to be safe, and that was within certain parameters, was in school. But you didn't talk about these things in school. And my father went in the VA hospital. I'm sure he had therapists there. He probably thought I didn't need one. He never even mentioned the word therapist. My mother thought it made you a second-class citizen. And certainly I had to recover from that, luckily with my wife's help, because she said, look, it's just another kind of disease. It's a mental disease. Oh, you're implying this in a very different way than my mother used to talk about it. And so I eventually got over that, that it made me a second-class citizen. My fact that I'm talking about it so much, I guess, kind of more or less proves the fact. <laughs> but yeah, every little thing can be a problem along the way, at least for me. So I'd learned to study well, and I wasn't dumb. I wasn't the smartest person in the world. But I did manage to graduate from Princeton, summa cum laude. They didn't take me in any of the Phi Beta Kappas or whatever. They, they didn't do that because they said, oh, you're too much of a nerd. You don't have any outside uh, activities. Well, and some outside activities with close friends. But that was enough for me. It was also at my, I was also at my capacity. That was the first time in my career in the education department where there was a glass ceiling. So I remember feeling a little pain. But then after not long, it's like, eh, I don't need that. I have this wonderful wife. We're going to go ahead in the world, and everything's going to be fine. I had this vision in my head of we're both working, which means we had more money. And even back then, a one-worker family was starting to put a strain on the family. It's much worse today. Somehow this has got to be solved, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, I, I guess I will only say that, um, like I started with, that through all the trials and tribulations of recovery, I'm in so much a better place now. And I feel so much more spiritual. And I, you know, I'm, I'm cautious. I still worry too much about some catastrophe happening. But nowhere like I used to. And I foresee as I continue my recovery that things will only get better and better. So I'm sorry if I've laid so much on you, but thank you for listening. <laughs>